Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? My name is Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. I couldn't get... Why couldn't I just launch there? What happened? All right. Look at what's going on. All right, let's do this. Like, all of a sudden, I don't know how to say that. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Wow. I don't know, man. Is it the time of day? It can't be the time of day. How are you? What's going on? What is happening? Nothing good. Nothing fucking good. What are you going to do with that? Holy shit. You know, I don't want to say that I told you so because I'm not really an I told you so kind of guy. But I got to be honest, man, looking back at my last special, which I recorded ago, like in October, where I said, what has to happen? Does the sky have to catch fire? Does the sky have to catch fire? The sky is on fire. I'm not happy that I told you so, but I guess it did have to catch fire. I don't know what's going to happen with that in the special. You know, it doesn't, uh, there's a lot of different angles on it. There should only be one. But people are fucking incomprehensible. People are fucking incomprehensible. It's not my line. It's from Michael Clayton, Sidney Pollack. People are fucking incomprehensible. Use whatever options at your disposal that you have to maintain your sanity. Not that I think that clarity is that necessary because it's, it's, it's pretty fucking daunting, the clarity. I don't think being dumb or shallow or ignorant or detached is, I don't think that's good either. You're going to have to shoulder the clarity. How do you shoulder that if you have it? I mean, shit is fucked up. And yet we knew that he knew, you know, Woodward's book comes out. We knew, I, I mean, I knew that he knew, but now it becomes painfully clear that uh, this kind of um, mass murder through negligence to meet political means is what's happening. And no matter how many people cry for justice, the system and the state and the entire country is unfixably broken. We live in a failed state. Now, however your life is or whatever is okay or whatever you're scraping together for yourself, I mean, that's what's happening. I just want to make sure we all acknowledge that. Now, what can you do? Do you feel powerless? Yeah, we can vote. Hope the voting works. 
If you want to watch my special for a little painful relief, get giddy, people. Get ready, get active, get laughing. It's gotten to the point where I've pushed through to the other side. It is so fucking apocalyptic, so fucking dystopian, so insane, this goddamn evil clown show that we're living through that I've gotten to the point where I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's fucking terrible. It's ne- and there's no seemingly no way out. Your brain hits a wall. You can't speculate. It's only going to go in the burning garbage. There's no speculating. There's no hope. No matter what happens, we're f- it's fucked up. And at some point, you're just like, oh, oh, man. Oh, man. This is fucking crazy. It's really happening. Apocalyptic giddiness. That is anger mixed with fear, mixed with hopelessness, mixed with sadness. And you just kind of let it press down on you until your heart feels the weight. And all you can do is kind of go, oh, shit. Fuck. I hope you're managing okay. I hope you're using every option at your disposal to maintain your sanity. And someone added this, and I think it's true, unless it's at the expense of someone else's sanity. I mean, let's not let's not drain the people we love to the point where they don't know what's up. You can't just use someone. You can't just sit there and be like, oh, this is fucked, this is fucked, this is fucked, we're fucked. And they go, no, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. No one can tell me it's going to be okay. No, it'll be okay. We'll get through it. I don't know if we're going to get through it. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get through it. You're, we're fucked. We're, we're not fucked. We have today and we have now and we have our, this and we have all the love and, and, and everything. It's like, it doesn't fucking matter, man. It doesn't fucking matter. It's fucking over. No, I mean, just take it easy. It's, it's you know, it's going to be okay today. Let's just stay in the day. Fuck the day. You're right. You're right. We're fucked. What? We're fucked. I, I just, it's over. What? No, you can't say that. You're you're the one that doesn't say that. No, I'm done. I can't hold it up anymore. It's fucking over. Then if you're not, if you think it's over, then it, what's, what's really, it's really over. Like, well, you should have fucking hung your hope on something bigger instead of draining me and using me like some sort of spiritual and emotional battery until I can't take it anymore. And I've got no, no fucking fire left. Hey, come on, t- take it easy. Fuck you. No, that, no, 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 no. Fuck, what do we do now? Hey, no, 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 you can't be the... Oh, no. So, keep your sanity, but don't drain the other person. That was just a conversation I have with myself, you know, on most mornings. Seriously. Um, look, I didn't even mention this. Martin Short is on the show today. I talked to Martin... And uh, he is actually, you know, Martin Short. He's from SCTV, SNL, Three Amigos. He did the, that live thing with uh, Steve Martin. Um, everybody, everybody loves Martin Short. And he's actually nominated. He is nominated for an Emmy this year as Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for his guest role on The Morning Show, which you can watch on Apple TV+. Plus. He was very good in it. It's a very kind of disturbing role for Martin Short, but he was very good in it. So I woke up to the smell of raw sewage. What is my mother? No, that was from fucking an hour ago. My mother wants me to tell her 
when I'm going on Instagram Live. Um, and I did. And now at 2.13, she's, uh, she goes, okay, gives me the emoji, the customized Toby emoji with the thumbs up. And I had to tell her that uh, you fucking missed it. I didn't say that, though. Smell of raw sewage, not great. Not a great smell. Just wafting through the air outside. That's a bad, I don't know what neighborhood you live in or where your brain goes, but uh, the the sewage smells bad when it's just going through the air and you're like, where's that coming from? Is that my house? Is my house about to explode and be lifted up on the blast of a shit geyser? Is it going to be some bad effect where I... We're just out of nowhere. Just there's a, a rumbling and then like. <laughs> and just this furious shit geyser with my house sitting on top of it. And Buster in there going. <laughs> Scoped it out. I don't know. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't, I don't know what's happening. I really don't know what's happening. I know the sky is red. And it's like, it's weird, right, that everyone just, if you're out here in the West Coast, you, you, you wake up to this fucking, it's a hellscape. But there's weird part of the human brain that just sort of like, well, this is kind of bad, right? Does this happen? No. This looks, did this happen last year? No. Were there fire tornadoes ever? No. Did it rain fire before? No. Then there's these weird dates where it's like, this is the second hottest day on record. It's like, what was the first? When, when, when the earth was cooling? Jesus, fuck. So look, I don't want to be a bummer. I'm okay. <laughs> it's over, man. <laughs> it's fucking happening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm crying and laughing at the same time. I'm okay. You Okay. That's the weird thing is that craving, you know, that weird craving where it's like, who's going to make it okay? There's nobody alive that you know that can confidently tell you everything's going to be all right. Even in that passive way where they don't really know, but you trust them enough because of love or connection that you will be calmed by it. But that's the fucking hardest thing. It's like, are we going to be okay? I don't know. No one knows. And when people go like, it's going to be okay, they don't know. And you know, they don't know. And when you try to think of the future, you're like, fuck, who knows what's going to happen in an hour? Tough place to be. And we're all there. And uh, we're doing it, folks. We're doing it. Change where you can. Do what you got to do. Help out. Be a decent human. Try to do that. I don't know. Why do I feel like there needs to be a message? We're fucked. We're fucked, dude. It's over, man. <laughs> All right, so let let me just share this with you, this Martin Short business. Um, As I said before, he's a, you know, Martin Short. But he's up for an Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor on a drama series for The Morning Show, uh, which is on Apple TV+. And this is me talking to Martin Short, coming up. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. That's an empty chair. Hello. Hello. There I thought we were going to you were going to just be off camera. That'd be hip. There we go. Is that your doorbell? It's my clock. Oh, you have a clock? Is it? Uh, how often is it going to do that? That's great sound. That's very nice. What a nice room you have. Thank you. It's once an hour. You can live with it. I can, sure. Um, now, the wall, the pictures, that's the life behind you? <laughs> this, is, this is the life behind me. Absolutely. <laughs> I was at uh, Jonathan Winter's house. Yeah. Uh, and he had a wall of photographs from like 100 years of life. And there was one picture, just this old, very old picture of a boy and a dog. And we're standing there looking at 100 pictures of his entire life and career. And he just goes, I miss that dog. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he like the greatest genius ever? It was something else, man. I, You know, yeah. I, I, I went to his house to talk to him before he died. And obviously, and... Yeah, after we got done talking, he says, I want to show you the planes. And that's where we were heading when he showed me the pictures. We walked to his uh, his bedroom, uh, which they had moved because he couldn't get around as well. And he had this four-poster bed. And on the ceiling, there was like 100 different model planes suspended from little pieces of string. And he <laughs> says, <laughs> and that was that was him. And, he, and then we went to lunch, and he wore a... Uh, a Civil War hat. He wore a Civil War hat. He did. Uh, the correct side. It was a Union uh, Colonel's hat, I believe. Oh, okay. For uh, for lunch. You, you know, he, you know, when you're Jonathan Winters and you go to lunch in the little town you live in, it's a spectacle. You need to you need to show up for the people. Yeah. No. No. I did a I did a um, an animated cartoon show with him once. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I want to say eighty eight, eighty nine, and he was simply hysterical it's too much and for me and my brother michael we wrote the show together it was so surreal because you know i always feel like it doesn't matter who's famous now it's who's fame who was famous when you were 12 for sure yeah Yeah. and they're the ones you can't believe you're meeting he got me once winters did when i was interviewing years ago for comedy central i was the montreal comedy festival running around like an idiot with a microphone yeah 95 and I, you know, I get him and I'm standing there with a mic. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. I'm a kid. And I'm like, so how's it going? Uh, uh, Jonathan, are you seeing any 
performers you like up here this year? And he goes, well, I haven't really gotten out much. Uh, you know, my wife, uh, my wife's ill and uh, she's in the room. And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm sorry to hear that. He goes, I shouldn't have put her in air cargo. It wasn't the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and I didn't see it coming. I did not see it coming. No, he was amazing. Those guys like Rickles and yeah, those people that you were so thrilled to meet. Yeah. And then you couldn't believe how funny they still were. It is kind of amazing that they still got that, that there's a, an engine to it. I remember I, I was at a dinner. I have a pseudo weird memory for dates and things. Mm -hmm. I once said, someone once said to me, oh, you have that H. Sam thing. And I said, yeah, I, yeah, I've heard of that. That's that Mary Lou and I couldn't remember Henner. So I realized I didn't have it. Right. You know what I mean? I couldn't remember <laughs> Hannah. Yeah. Right. Um, but I remember being at a dinner with Don Rickles. It was at David Steinberg uh, and Robin Steinberg's house, and they were throwing a party for Jill Lederman, executive producer of Jimmy Kimmel's show, who was about to have a baby. Uh -huh. And Rickles was there. Yeah. And they put, you know, all the funny guys at Rickles' table. And he was just hilarious and performing and performing and just – and Jimmy Kimmel and I were there and we were laughing so hard. And then at one point, his wife, Barbara, hadn't spoken for about 15 minutes. Uh -huh. And then she finally went, talk, 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 talk. <laughs> and he goes, oh, talk, 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 talk. Let's put it this way. If it wasn't for the talk, 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 you'd be a derelict. <laughs> it just hearing the word derelict. Derelict. I haven't heard that word for a while. It's like degenerate gambler. <laughs> exactly. You don't hear certain things anymore. No, 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 no. I, uh, you know, you and I have met. Do you know that? Yes, I know we met. We, uh, I wouldn't expect you to remember now that I've been in show business for a, a relatively long time. It was one of those forgettable things that probably that was just something you did during a junket. But uh, I used to host a thing called Short Attention Span Theater. And I remember the, this. And the conceit was a basement, a vault. And we did yeah. a whole show built around you. We did like four or five segments interviewing. It was probably to promote Clifford, I imagine. It was probably something like that. Yeah, yeah. 92, 93, something like that. It was probably mm -hmm. probably put together by Nancy Geller. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you remember Nancy Geller? Of course. Nancy <laughs> Geller was an executive producer of SCTV one year. Oh, see, she you probably she probably called in a favor because she was at HBO Downtown then, which is who was producing it. There and, you go, yeah. And we did a we did a, a long form interview. I'll try not to cover any of those questions because I know that. Uh, right. I don't, go I don't ahead. Want... It's been it's only been twenty five <laughs> years. I'm sure there'll be some people who'll forget. <laughs> no, no answer. Nobody watched it. Nobody saw that <laughs> interview, Martin. All right, well they were free. We can cover it. Yeah. So I I enjoyed the uh, the thing you did with Steve Martin. Yes. Now, when you do something like that, when you and Steve do that, what, what is the creative process? Do you just say, like, do you want to, what are you doing next month? Yeah. How does that, how does a show like that come together? Well, it was, uh, I, I remember it was um, the spring of uh, 2011, 2011. And uh, that's my Rain Man. Very and good. And I, uh, we had been asked to interview each other uh -huh. on stage to close the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Chicago. Okay. And it was successful, mm -hmm. but it was also, we had really 
you know, we're close friends, but we hadn't done anything like this. It was fun. Right, right. And you know, the agent said, do you want to book a couple more? We said, sure. Just interview shows. The night oh, you had the dinner the night before, you had drinks afterwards. It's right. fun. Yeah. And then we kind of, and at that time, Steve didn't have a show, and I did have a show. He had his banjo show, but he didn't have, like, other than his musical show. And so I said, well, why don't we take elements of my show? And we just, and that's how we kept expanding it into a real show. Right, right. And then, and then we just kept working on it. And the more we did it, the more we'd add different things, you know. And, and it, it, it is as much fun as you can have because everyone is nice. Everyone yeah. is cool. Right. There are no pricks yeah. involved, allowed, you know. And you don't and, have to do it. I mean, it's one of these things. You don't where, have to. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you guys. You don't have to do it. Chose. You know what I mean? We're doing this because we want to do it. But, you know, the, the, the instinct to make it good and to work on it is literally no difference than if I was on SCTV in 82. Right, right. Yeah. It's that same, um, you know, nerves and uh, focus. And, uh, and I don't think that ever changes. I think it changes if you stop being in show business for a while and then you come back and and you're a little off right i can understand that but i i i and and steve we never really have stopped doing any of this right until now So it's just and then after you have a few under your belt it's just fun and yeah and then there's you know there's the wine afterwards yeah (laughs) how does it feel to be like not doing anything right now i feel like i'm michael cohen i'm in house arrest yeah this is what house arrest would be. But have you ever gone this long? I have never gone this long without doing stand-up. It's very hard to break away from a work ethic schedule, I yeah. find. You know? Yeah. And it takes a while for you to go, wow, I have literally nothing on the schedule <laughs> till August 21, and then I'm supposed to see an eye doctor. I mean, that's it. That's it. So it's very, it is very, <laughs> it's very weird. I don't know. What have you been doing? Well, um, uh, at one point, I decided uh, that every time there was a fire mm. or an earthquake in L.A., I'm never in L.A., one of my kids would be at the house. And they said, Dad, we're loading the car. What should we put in? And I'd always start with, oh, the old photo albums. Like, I mean, of my parents and grandparents and going back, you know. Yeah. And then I thought, I know what I'll do. I will get a photocopier machine. I'm going to transfer all the old pictures from 1913 on. Wow. Transfer them to my thing. And then I would spend a little time, you know, making people look a little better. Oh, nice. A little Photoshop. Grandma's looking a little tired. I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah. So suddenly I'm making people who have been dead for 50 years look hotter. (laughs) Yeah. that and then i have three kids in la i have a son and, and daughter-in-law who live with me here he's studying to be a vet you're here and right you're I, in la in la yeah. yeah and then i have my daughter lives you know over there and i spend a couple of days with her and then my son lives in sherman oaks and i'll stop in and visit him you know yeah. so i kind of between the three houses but that's it I've been at Gelson's, a store. I've been anything. When our country is like this, I mean, I talked to a Canadian yesterday. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I maybe I'm a bad American, but my my thought is, if like if you could live in Canada, why the fuck wouldn't you right now? <laughs> well, um, it is startling to see the level of flatlining in Canada. 
Uh-huh. I mean, it's, but you know, Canada is very, they, they're not kidding around. Yeah. If I were to go, I have a cottage in Canada. Right. North of Toronto. Yeah. If I were to go there at, at, at customs, I'd have to say, this is my address. Yeah. I have to give them my cell phone number and you have to go there. Right. And you have to be there for 14 days. And if you decide, I'm bored, I'm going to go to Toronto. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You can be fined $750,000. Wow. It's not kidding around. And the Canadian sensibility is a little more like, it, it, it's, it's different. You know, obviously we're very similar um, to Americans. Although Lorne Michaels once said to me, I, had, I did a special in 85 on Showtime. And I did it in Toronto, and they'd cut to the audience. Yeah. And Lauren, Lauren looked at it and said, Canadian audiences always look like Russian spies who are dressed up as Americans. <laughs> There's a beard that's too bushy. There's something off, you know. Right. But anyway, the Canadians kind of, um, they have great trust in the government. You know, in, a friend of mine, I was talking this morning, British Columbia. Yeah. He said, so they have the daily briefings, but there's not a politician involved. Right. It's all just doctors. They're the only ones who speak. Yeah. They're grown up people. Yeah. They're, they trust science and uh, they have a uh, health care that's reasonable for humans. And uh, there's yeah, a lot less. You have someone who has an 80 million person Twitter and he's saying, oh, you're being politically uh, correct with that mask, huh? Or talking about it's a witch hunt, the, all these things. There are people who are going to be influenced. There no, are it's terrible. That are going- that's why. That's why I wouldn't stay. It's like, like you know, the disease is a disease, but it's like it's a frightening time. It seems you know with the divisiveness, and I fantasize about just you know. I think it's going to be okay. Okay, I do. I think it's going to be okay because I think 2016 was a typo, and I think people didn't want to hire another Clinton. Blah blah blah. But and a woman and all that. Stuff. Yeah. You know, all the things that scared people, but the reality and intellect that yeah. scared them, you know, for some. But but the reality is that in 2018, people were tired of it. OK. All right. I, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll stay with the optimism. I'll, I mean, I stay will. Yeah. I mean, be, you're generally an optimistic guy, it seems. I am. <laughs> Where does that come from? Is that Canadian? I don't know. That is a weird question. I mean, a good question and a, a weird. Um, Do you remember thing. when it happened? I don't know. Was there was there ever a time in your life where you were like, "Oh, this I think is- I think it's DNA, and I think it's the way you're raised. I think you know, I'm the youngest of five, and all my siblings are funny and loose yeah. and sweet and yeah. happy and optimistic. Let's talk about Hamilton for a minute because I spent some time there recently, and I got into a little bit of trouble uh, because Uh-oh. because I I I was. Uh, I, I kind of brought to light the fact that it's seen better days, that it's uh, uh, that <laughs> there was a, a I, I, I was poetic about it. I said there's a parade of pain of some kind. Like I was there for two weeks and it was uh, jarring the the sort of type of kind of uh, it wasn't so much being destitute. There was just sort of a, there was something going on on the streets that represented trouble. I don't- no, you know what happened to Hamilton? They had they had major. Um- International Harvester, a big company, and that went bankrupt. You grew up there, right? You grew up in Hamilton, no? I grew up there, yeah. And I went to university there, McMaster University. So what was it like when you were a kid? Did you, was that, wasn't there a big... It was, I'm telling you, it was elegante. Yeah. It was, you see pictures of, you know, from the Connaught Hotel, and people are dressed in fabulous clothes. Yeah. I, I think it just hit in the uh, 70s and 80s, hard times with closing of big companies, like steel companies. And so... 
But now they've reinvented it and now it is going up. No, it was just I had never seen more like and I don't even know what to make of it. I was shooting a movie up there and we were driving around and every day there was just like people. There was always this weirdness on the streets and it just looked like um, a little chaotic, a little druggy, a little. Yeah, it looked like a Detroitish kind of situation. Well, I can't imagine why if you brought this up, you weren't uh, embraced (laughs) by the city. I, I I didn't I was trying to be honest and now I wasn't but you can't it's not my place. No one wants honesty in show business. I know you know that when you see a horrible play on Broadway. You don't go backstage and say, "Wow, was this horrible?" Yeah, you guys, you no should one wants just to hear that. throw the towel say, in now. This was fantastic. Yeah, okay, that yeah, great, so good. Or you at least you focus on the things that were good. You know, uh, yeah. those shoes were. Re- what are those shoes? Yeah, yeah. And how, <laughs> like, are you gonna like to do this every night? <laughs> Is what an accomplishment. So there were five kids in the family. Five. And you guys were. And you, did your dad work for one of the big companies that went out of business? My father was a vice president of Canadian Steel. Wow. And um, my mother was a, the concert master of the Hamilton Philharmonic. And that was a big so deal would, then. That was a big deal. And she would rehearse five hours a day. And my father was an executive. And, and yeah, I, I had a great, happy-go-lucky childhood. What did she play? What was the, what was the intro? Violent. Oh. Did, so when there... you were the concert master of a symphony, you are the first violinist. Oh, that's, that's always the way it is. Yes. And uh, so you you had art in the house. You had expression. You had music. You had people who I did. embraced I did. your creativity, I imagine. My father would give my mother an opera every Christmas and on Boxing Day, which is the 26th, the next yeah. day, um, we would like read the libretto and hear it. I mean, I tell people that and they go, what? Yeah. What? I said, you didn't have that? No, I didn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, so you, do you still enjoy opera? No, no, not really. And there's some I like. I love, you know, hearing the three tenors and the stuff like that, but I'm not obsessed. I do like classical music, though. I do, especially the older I get, I, I find myself gravitating toward that, especially during pandemic times where you just can't hear it anymore yeah. for the day. You're done right. for the day. You don't want to, you don't want to get uh, worked up on bebop. No. So sometimes a little, uh, you know, Mozart can just be the perfect combo. But do you like, were you educated with it? So like every year, oh, it was just once a year you get the opera, but you didn't, were you? No, but there was a, there was a, you know, I would go to the symphonies. Mm -hmm. My father was also the president of the symphony. So I I remember being five and like not figuring out how can this sound not be coming out of speakers? Like I'd be in the second row. It was very surreal. It's wild, right? Yeah. To be in a symphony hall that hey, you've played yeah. them too, Have, isn't it a, a, a trip when you perform on the stage of a symphony hall? It's insane, and I've done shows with symphonies, and that's also really, yeah. But you can just talk, and you can hear it, and then it's such a well-designed acoustic place. It's it fascinates oh, it's, me. It's spectacular, like Carnegie Hall. Oh my god, it's know. crazy. So, why didn't you become a musician? Well, I, you know, I, I, we had to play piano. All of us had to play piano from age five on, mm. take piano lessons. But then at 13, you could quit. Oh, that was the rule? And I quit. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, you know, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in the 60s, when I was a teenager, you, you'd look at American television, that's all you looked at, through Buffalo. 
Uh-huh. You never look at Canadian television. And it didn't seem like it was real. It didn't seem like it was a real opportunity for someone in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Right. Um, so I'd be in my attic pretending to do shows and I had a laugh applause record and I had a gooseneck lamp because even then I knew I needed lighting. You had a laugh record? I had a la- applause record from sure. Sinatra the Sands. Oh, okay. I looped it. Okay. And I'd reel to reel and I'd hold my mic up and and I had a um Wait, what were you doing up there? So you looped the the applause. The Martin Short Show. Oh, okay. And it was on uh, Tuesdays at eight o'clock on NBC, <laughs> but every other Tuesday. Yeah. Because that left room for my movie career. Sure. I was 14, 15. Yeah. So you think if, you, if that's your kid, you go, well, then I got to, he's got to go to a national art school or something. Right. But to me, it, there was not a hint of really doing this. It was fantasy. It was unrealistic. You know, I'd watch television. I'd watch, um, I don't know, something from Disneyland. It might as well have been on Neptune. You know? Right, right. So I was going to be a doctor. Really? Yeah, I went into pre-meds. Not because I liked science. I liked. I was a fan of Chad Everett's work on Medical Center. And I thought, you know, the idea of being a doctor sure. was not, I didn't want to have to study anything, but I liked the idea of, because I would say of all professions, I admire that the most. Right. Because it looked authoritative and you, you help people and you you can help them die you can help give birth to a baby yeah, you can yeah, yeah. make them feel better sure no I, I i admire that yeah but no then i switched to social work and then so that my four years at university were pre-meds and social work and then i left an actor so you went to you went to school in hamilton there was a big college here yeah did not leave home now no. there like in my recollection now i've talked to a few others there was some sort of comedy uh, magic in Hamilton, right? I mean, well, I, uh, there, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Eugene Levy was at university. He was a few years older. Dave Thomas. Yeah. Um, Ivan Reitman, the director. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to, uh, I've talked to Eugene. I've talked to Ivan. Graduates from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. But you didn't know any of them. At, I knew at, Eugene. I knew Eugene. At school. And I met Ivan. I met Ivan. Yeah. But he was the head of the film board and he was, you know, uh, I was younger than those guys, right? By a few years, so, uh, but uh, like I think my first year, Eugene was it was his last and stuff like that. And but uh, I knew Ivan, and I remember Ivan will still say to me, "We'll be at like the AFI awards for yeah. someone, right?" And he'll always stand beside me and say, "Can you believe the two of us from Hamilton out there?" You know, yeah. Not losing the perspective of how, what are the odds. <laughs> yeah. But then, and then, so I was there for four years. And then in 72, there yeah. was this amazing scene in Toronto. That's where I went to be, try to be an actor. So that's where you went to live? You went up there and got an apartment? I, I got, well, I, when I was still in university, I got the show Godspell. Yeah, see, and this is the, wanted, it was, the famous Godspell production. That's the famous Godspell. And, but hanging around that time in, in, um, Toronto were people like Danny Aykroyd who yeah. wanted to be a, a cop at that point. And you knew him? John Candy. Yes. That's I met them all. I met Danny Aykroyd on June twenty eighth, nineteen seventy two. Huh. And the reason I know it's that it was because it was Gilda's birthday, Radner. Yeah. And there was a big party for her at this place called Global Village in Toronto Club. And Danny and his then comedy partner, Valerie Bromfield, 
stayed in character as um, Gilda's parents from Detroit. Mm. And I just, I had never met someone so original and funny. And you, and you at that time had already done Godspell? No, we were doing it. I did Godspell for a year. So this would be, um, we had probably just opened and I did it for a year. And where'd y'all, all your siblings end up? Uh, my brother, Michael is a very successful comedy writer. Yeah. Wrote on SCTV, uh, one of the head writers of Shit's Creek. Oh yeah, it's a good. Still show. doing it, you yeah. know, a million Emmys and a million successes. My brother Brian, vice president of uh, Dover Industries, a, a company that makes pot, paper products, and my sister Nora is a, a nurse anesthetist. Huh, and they're all older. Yeah, and so you. I'm, I'm the youngest, and you were the last one to leave the house. The big mistake. Yeah, <laughs> you were the accident. I was the accident. Yeah. <laughs> So well, when there's a 14 year difference, you know, you're an accident. Oh, that's crazy. So like, that's a lot. That's so they were gone most of your life. Right. Well, you know, I had a lot of and it goes back to optimism. I had a lot of, you know, sadness as a young guy growing up in that house. It was a fabulous house. Right. And yet when I was 12, my brother, David, the eldest died in a car accident. Oh, my God. My mother immediately got cancer. She would die in 67 when I was 17. Huh. And then my father died a year later when I was 19. Oh, my God. Or, yeah. So I actually, for a year, got orphan relief checks from the Ontario government. My, and, and all the siblings and out were of gone. And to my father, I would just use that money to buy alcohol. <laughs> Did he enjoy the alcohol? He, a gin and ginger, no ice, dear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's Irish. You know, the Irish feel that ice is, is addictive, so he wouldn't go near ice. <laughs> Was he like real Irish? Like talk with an accent Irish? Yes, you're born and raised cross McGlen County, Armagh. <laughs> Marty, get down here. Uh, I I love Ireland. Oh, it's so fabulous. Do you go? Isn't it great? My yes, my well, my father was born and raised in uh, at Shorts Bar in Cross McGlen County, Armagh, which <laughs> is just over the border from Dundalk, uh -huh. and it is still in operation, run right. by my ninety. Five-year-old aunt, really? Aunt Rosaline, yes. That's amazing. And cousins, and cousins. So you have f real family there. Absolutely. You still can, there, Shorts Bar. We can go right now. You can, you know, you can be a citizen there too if you want. I know. Mm. I, I have three passports. Yeah. And I'm going. Yeah, oh, really? What's the fourth one? I have UK. I have Canada, US, and yeah. then um, I get Republic of Ireland. I would love to live in Ireland, and I'm a Jew. I've got no connection, but for some reason, it resonates with me. I don't know why. The people, the people are really spectacular. They are, man. And sarcastic it's... and funny and loose. And yeah, I love it. One time spending, I was at Shorts Bar. This is like '98, and I'm staying up all night with my two cousins, Oliver and and Patrick, and we're drinking. Um, and when you are publicans, as they call it, yeah. They, you don't drink from the bar. You put money into the till and then you take a drink. Okay. It's a, it's a sin to not do it that way. Anyway, I came down first around nine in the morning and there were glasses and I saw my uncle Patty cleaning the glasses out and he looked at me and said, so how did the character assassination go last night, Marty? <laughs> they knew. We were talking about all of them. <laughs> That's beautiful. So you, when you left for... Toronto, like you, what, 
you, what happened to the house and stuff? I mean, I still had a fourth year university, and by the end of that year, we sold the house, okay. and I had an apartment in in Hamilton. And then um, I got Godspell, and now I moved into a house with Eugene Levy, and another guy, John Yaffe. Yaffe. Yaffe, and we had uh, this big house in Avenue Road, which is uh, in Toronto. Yeah. Tom Hanks always loves that it. it's called Avenue Road. Yeah. He, you know, he brings that up. To every... me, I never, it never seemed odd, but yeah. you know, I wouldn't have thought of it. Yeah, and then I did Godswell, and then I started going out with Gilda, and I kind of lived with her. So, was this the your, your first immersion in Jews? No, <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 no. I am ten percent Jewish on my agent side. I <laughs> Jewish is very important yeah. to me. Uh-huh. No, no, no. I grew. I'll tell you exactly what it is. I grew up. In a very Jewish section of Hamilton, Westdale. So all my friends were Jewish. And there was something else. I was, you know, not the tallest kid in the class. So I wasn't, it wasn't about, you know, the, the football player and I are going to hang. I was drawn toward the smartest sure. people in the class. Yeah. And there were a class of 38. I, I swear all the smartest people were Jewish. Yeah. It's just a fact. And so the, uh, then my best friends were Mitchell Rosenblatt, Alex Diglett, and Sheldon Bechalter. 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 So because like I know that, you know, you do have a sensitivity to the timing and to, you know, I think a few of your characters are Jewish, whether you'd say they're Jewish or not. I'm not aware of that, except, um, and many, many people from my life think I'm Jewish. Oh, really? Oh, Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're in show business, and you have you have a very good uh, you have you have the innate shtick timing. Yeah, I guess, but so does John Mulaney, doesn't he? No, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. He's he's got a thing that he does, but I mean, I'm no. Sorry. I guess. Well, listen, I I don't know what it is. It's also probably, you know, as a kid, I'm watching television and I'm responding to. Yeah, I was going to say Jerry Lewis, but I'm also responding to Jonathan Winters and Dick Van Dyke. And yes, I can see know. that. So, uh, I, I, you know, when Stan Laurel, Stan Laurel, oh, yeah, he's great. Did you see that movie yeah. with Coogan and uh, Genius? It was they such a so great brilliant. fucking movie. And how great are they? Unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable! How I know. the work they put into that fucking thing. Have yeah. you have you played Stan Laurel? Why do I feel like you've played him? No, never. No. No. Never tried to do it as a character? Say Ollie. Well, I mean, I could I could do that. <laughs> I certainly do. Mm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you move in with Gilda. You guys are... Yeah. And now, like, what was this... What, the Godspell thing... I mean, did was this the beginning of sketch comedy in Canada after Godspell? Because it seemed like the people that were in it all kind of started to do that. No, I think it was just... Um, you know, it was a smaller pond. Yeah. And and I will tell you, the Godspell editions were like out of, um, you know, reality show that you'd see now. It was like, it was already a hit in New York and everyone, everyone who was an actor wanted it. Yeah. So everyone auditioned and the final callback of the Masonic Temple in Toronto was, I don't know, 500 people. Oh my so God. So the rest of the, rest of the, um, uh, temple masonic temple was loaded with supporters and fans right and then they you know you start off you'd sing and then they in groups of five and they call back one person of the five and you had to come back an hour later 
and do it again. And then an hour later, if you made that cut off, it, you had to do an improv sketch. Wow. You know, so they were looking for people that could were talented, but it was a raw talent. But that day they cast Eugene Levy mm-hmm. and uh, Victor Garber as Jesus and Andrea Martin. Yep. And uh, myself and Pa Schaefer. Yeah. They made him the musical director. So it was kind of uh, an amazing. Was Dave uh, Thomas in it too? Dave Thomas would come a little bit later. Oh, okay. Not that day. And so it was a surreal thing. And then a year later, Second City came to town. Okay. From Chicago. And set up shop. And that, they were doing a sister company and Joe Flaherty and Brian Doyle Murray were going to direct the first show. And they, everyone auditioned for it. I didn't, oddly enough. Uh, you know, I think it was, I was afraid of it or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else wanted it so badly. So, and they got it. Gilda got it and John Candy got it and Eugene uh-huh. of my group. And what was the show? It was just a, a sketch show? Uh, that was a best of Second City show. And yeah. and they, oh, really? And then they developed material. And... Okay. So, so all those people had had experience improvising. Uh, you know, I'm not. They say you learn quickly yeah. at Second City. You learn things like, like the things that I was afraid of was I'd always been the funny guy at parties and I was funny on stage. And I hated the pressure of being funny now. That's what Second City represented to me. Oh. Until I realized that, no, you just go out and keep talking in the character. And sometimes a reaction would be a bigger laugh than an action or a word. Right. And um, so you, you learned to calm down. Right. And just inhabit and the At the same time, learning how to improvise. Right. But you're also like, I would imagine you, you're, you can sing and stuff too, which is a nice right. thing. Right. Not right. that you need it for improvising, but you know, you could, I mean, you've done musicals. It's exciting. Yeah. It, it, well, I think, you know, a, a Canadian career is more um, eclectic. You know, there's not, certainly when I was there, just living there as as a Canadian actor, there wasn't so much a star system, but you could have 12 different jobs in the course of a month. Where if you were an American actor in Hollywood, you would never get that kind of practical experience. Yeah. I've, I've, I've I've noticed that about Canada and I've said, I've said it to other Canadians that if you hang around Canadian show business and uh, long enough, you'll, you'll get your show. (laughs) Yeah. You'll get something. And, and, but you'll also have had hours logged hours of, (laughs) <laughs> things that maybe no one saw but like still, what what did you do that no one saw i at 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 22 yeah. um, was the host of my own show on cbc called right on yeah and um it was live yeah at 5 p.m yeah and uh i would sing the songs of the week but I had no funk. So it was, I shot the sheriff, you know, that. Yeah. And, um, and then they'd also feature Canadian, young Canadian talent. Uh-huh. And there was no cue cards and I would just forget lyrics. And uh-huh. Terrifying. And they just, went that was on, on and off quickly. We had one half season. Well, it's kind of funny. Cause that's how Dan, uh, Eugene's son kind of started. Yes, absolutely. Well, he was, that was MTV. That was hipper. Yeah. But you know who's the announcer on Right On? Who? And now the host of your show, Martin Short, Alex Trebek. No. Yeah. So he was doing that stuff too. 
Well, he did it once, you know, but yeah. he was like the big voice guy then, and he just popped in, hi, <laughs> did the little thing, and he off a, he went. That was, his, that was who he was? He was the Canadian Don Pardo? <laughs> Something like that. Oh. No, he was hipper than that, but he was certainly, if you were going to have an announcer do that, you got Alex Trebek. He's your guy? Yeah. Were you guys friends? No. Oh. But I, I've met him through the years, and I've done, uh, I did Celebrity Jeopardy once. How'd you do? Not well. Yeah. I did better during the practice round. There was something I kept saying my buzzer was off, you know. Sure. Yeah. And then I was doing so badly I decided to do jokes. And that kind of <laughs> pissed people off, I think. Yeah. When yeah, when uh when you're when you're failing, it's always good to be funny. Yeah, as if you're not really drunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So well, how did what was the roots of SCTV though? You were there at the beginning of that, right? No, not really. No, really. Um, well, because I didn't join Second City again. I had a thing of uh, I'll join it when um, I really want to do it. Yeah, that makes more sense. Right. And so SCTV started. Second City TV started in '76. Uh, so I wasn't in that. I hadn't even joined the stage show yet. Huh. Oh really? And, uh, that was that was Joe Flaherty and Dave and Catherine and, and Eugene and uh, Andrea and Catherine and that was the original crew. Yeah, and then um, and then you know it faltered and, and then it, it didn't have its financing. It was off for a year, and then they got financing in Edmonton, and that's when Rick Moranis joined Edmonton. But still not me. And yeah. then I joined in '82. They were already a hit when I joined. They'd won, Edmonton. and they were in Edmonton. They did in Edmonton, and then they moved back to Toronto, and that's when I joined. How is Flaherty? He's still around, right? Oh yeah. You guys talk? We talked uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, everyone's kind of stays in touch. Yeah, well, you know, we're working on this documentary that Scorsese's doing on SCTV, and so we had a a, a Zoom about that, and uh -huh. everyone was involved. That must have been fun. It's great. I see Eugene lives two blocks down. He pops over. <laughs> Catherine O'Hara uh, lives five blocks down, and she has a cottage near me. She's up there now. Yeah. Andrea is my former sister-in-law. Right. So she's the aunt to my children. Right. So I speak to her all the time. That's nice. You know. I like hearing that. Dave, I love. Yeah. Talked to him two days ago. Great. No, it is an odd group that stayed... Um, close like i remember like when i was watching sctv i i can't even remember if it was actually it was on a weekend night and it was like this unique thing and i didn't understand where it was coming from or it was friday uh friday night yeah what year like in this well there were different incarnations the 90 minute show yeah that i was on to would have been um 12 30 right to two in the morning friday night right and what year was that 82, 83, 84. Right. And I remember you doing Robin on a ladder. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> it's for Tang. Oh, Tang you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just up on the ladder. And then I, I remember. Oh, beat me down, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. You did a good Robin. I think you might do the best Robin. Well, I, I certainly not a lot of people were doing it at the time. Oh, really? He wasn't that big a star yet? Or? Oh, he was a big star, but it was just like no one had could figure it out. On that. Yeah, figured yeah. Out. yeah. Figured out the, the, the pace. But the way you do SCTV is that 
let's say a writer wrote a piece, I remember, or Eugene wrote it, I think it was the idea that Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer had a famous fight Yeah. Uh, at a party and, and uh, evidently Mailer threw a glass of wine in Gore Vidal's face. And so the piece was um, reenactment of the fight. I play Gore Vidal, Eugene's Norman Mailer. And then it becomes a Tide commercial as they try to get the stain out of my shirt. <laughs> and it ultimately is a Tide commercial that they've done. So someone said, uh, you read it, it's funny. And someone says, hey, can you do Gore Vidal? And you go, sure. You have no idea if you can do Gore <laughs> yeah, Vidal. Right. And you go home. Yeah. And what I used to do is I'd get a recording of Gore Vidal and I'd type it up, transcribe his whole, like two minutes of Gore Vidal yeah. in an interview. Right. And then I juxtapose it with the script for the piece. But I, if you notice, like from the transcription of Gore Vidal, everyone speaks in a certain patterns, certain words they use a lot, uh, certain ahs. So I'd apply that to the script, kind of overlapping, mm -hmm. to try to figure out how to do Gore Vidal. And sometimes you'd have someone down like, I did Paul Anka once, and I was good for three takes. Yeah. Do you know and what I mean? And I then it was gone? Have the, I'd have the Walkman on. I'd throw it down. Let's go. Yeah. For 23 years, you made us laugh and cry and think, and you did it your way. Yeah. And then if I tried to do it two weeks later, I couldn't do it. Right. Oh, it was, or yeah. just round. Right now, I can't do it. Right. Yeah. So it would just stick for right, we, you, you, right when you heard it, you're like, I'm in. Let's do it. And that's it. Yes, exactly. But Robin sticks. Well, Robin, I knew Robin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And... Uh, you know, he had that kind of Irish lilt to him. He did, yeah. <laughs> Odd that he, his parents weren't Irish and he grew up in San Francisco, but, oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, he, wonderful. Yeah. Oh. It is kind of, <laughs> yeah. So you, did you guys ever, like, so you've done your impression of him to him and he probably got to be. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah. He did SCTV. Yeah. He, uh, we did Bowery Boys in the Band. Uh, the Bowery Boys and Boys in the Band, and I played um, Hunts Hall, and he was Leo Gorsi. It was fantastic. Oh, that's great. I used to watch that at my grandparents' house. Bowery Boys. <laughs> no one remembers I love the Bowery Boys. They were great. Well, you know, they started off in a movie, like a 1938 movie, as real teenagers, and then they just kept doing it. They were like 52 still doing it. Yeah. Weren't they the dead-end kids, too? Were they the That's how they started off, yeah. And then they became the Bowery Boys. Yeah. So from SCTV, like, because it seems, I don't know how everybody becomes, you know, eventually everyone ended up here. When did that sort of happen? When did the migration happen? You know, back to Canada, I remember there was this moment that Paul Schaefer was the first person in our group to be work in the States. He was working on the magic show, the Doug Henning D show. Yeah, yeah. Was and Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Godspell, was also that was his show. So he asked Paul to be keyboard for that show. So now Paul's in New York. And I remember Gilda and I phoning him one day. We were both in the same extension. Yeah. And Gilda said, Paul, what are New York actors like? And Paul said, well, I don't know. Maybe because you're my friends. I think you guys are just as talented. <laughs> and we went, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> yeah. We didn't believe it. So there was this tendency to, before I die, I have to give the states a shot. Or I always used to say, I want to look in the mirror and say, maybe you should have tried going to New York for a bit. 
Oh, that's right. You did. And you failed. Okay. <laughs> you wanted to, you know, cross it off your should have done it list. But so you went down there once before and then you, you left? No, no, no. What happened was that I went down uh, to try to, I don't know, get work or so. Oh, I know what it was. Lorne Michaels was now, uh, well, he was SNL and Gilda got me an interview with Lauren and I had now been, you know, I'd been successful in second city stage. I hadn't been in SCTV, but I, you know, I didn't have, people knew it wasn't like a total unknown. So anyway, Lauren offered me a holding deal. This would be in 19, uh, early, like January 79. Uh And he said, you know, Danny or John might leave. And I could see you were going in to the show for the fifth season. And so now I'm in New York. That's exciting. It wasn't, you know, a lot much money holding, but it was exciting and uh, complimentary. Um, but then at the same time, I auditioned for James L. Brooks, who had a new series called The Associates on ABC. Mm-hmm. And he was so powerful. He'd done all the Mary Tyler Moore shows and Phyllis. And also he had just signed a big deal with Paramount. And now he had just, his first show was Taxi. And that was a massive hit. Yes. So now this is the next year. And he had a 13 on the air, no pilot order. It's very cool. And I auditioned for him and I got, you know, one of the leads in the show. And so now I had planned to go to New York and now we were moving to California. You're, you, you and your wife or who? Yes. yes. That's right. My uh, girlfriend at the time who would become my wife. And that was 79, summer of 79. And that's what got you out here. That's what first got me out here. And then I ended up going back to do, of course, we owned a house in Toronto. Right. And going back in 82 to do um, SCTV. So that's like, because it, it's like, it's interesting how many, like you did a lot of stuff on television. You did that thing, which didn't take off, I guess. You did 13 though. We did 13. And then the next year I did another show called I'm a Big Girl Now <laughs> with Diana Canova and Danny Thomas. And that went off. But the, but this was the, but this was the year, these were the years of 13, 14 episode commitments. So it wasn't like Yeah, they... we did, we did 19 of I'm a Big Girl Now. And what went wrong with that show? Well, it wasn't, uh, I played Neil Stryker, the office boy. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, you know, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think it was the, you know, it wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't all in the family. Sure. That's what that was. Yeah. Yeah. But did you see yourself, like, were you, you saw yourself as just an actor or you saw yourself as a comedian, a comic actor? I think I saw myself as an actor. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, I also thought before I die, I want to do a Broadway show. I want to uh, act. I, I, you know, obviously SCTV, uh, Second City Stage was two years, um, 70, 70, 79 of improvising. But I don't know. You know, I, to me, it was just like, it wasn't so much, where's my career headed? What's my seven-year plan? I was just trying to figure out rent. Yeah. And everything, you know, in, in Canada, you know, you don't in those days, you didn't if you got a job, you didn't say, I wonder, should I run it past my manager to see if this is the right thing? Sure. You just say, do I bring a suit? Right. <laughs> do I, well, I need my own wardrobe. Is there going to be a, exactly. a, a hair yeah. and makeup person there or no? No, no, there won't be. <laughs> and what do you, what launched? Because like it seemed like there was a, a, a time there where, you know, you were definitely in the mix with the big things, the movies, like, you know, when you did Three Amigos and Inner Space and, well, the big picture, that's a great movie. But, I mean, 
How did that, how did, what, what caused that leap to happen when you, like Three Amigos? Well, I think that you, you know. Um, or was that for, you had already done SNL by that time? Yeah, I did SNL and, and I was successful in that. And that made me now a name that you would pitch. That was it, right. Three Amigos. Yeah. So you the know. SNL experience, that was like, that was a very unique, uh, wild season. It was that, yeah, we all had one year contracts because. Uh, Eddie Murphy had left the year right. before. Yeah, and Joe Piscopo had left. That's probably and better. now there was a, there was a feeling that the show might be canceled. Right, because Lauren you was know, gone too. Right, and Lauren was gone. It was Dick Ebersol. Right, and um, so there was a real sense should it be canceled. So Dick, he called it the George Steinbrenner year, where he um, offered a one-year contract with a lot more money than it ever been paid a cast member yeah. to Billy Crystal, yeah. Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, Martin Short, and Rich Hall. And did you know those guys? Did you know uh, Chris Guest before? No, no. That was when you met him, huh? I met Chris. I'd, I'd met Billy um, because my wife was on the TV show Soap with oh, right. Billy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'd met him briefly, and we had the same manager, Rollins and Jaffe. And Harry, I knew he was friends with Paul Schaefer. Okay, yeah. And I didn't know Rich. Yeah, so that's so you're all coming into it. You're all unique pros with real uh, comedic personalities. Defined. Yeah. Well, I remember. I remember. I just finished SCTV. Yeah. And I really wanted a break from this kind of thing. Yeah. And I actually still have it a pro and con list. Should I do SNL or not? Because uh-huh. we just got rented a new house out in LA, and I had a new baby. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so much work. And uh, what if I'm no good? And what if I stink? Yeah. There's all that stuff. But then I aired. And then um, Dick Abersaw had asked me to be. And I said, he said, you know, we're also going after Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. And I said, well, yeah, okay, let me know when you get them. <laughs> yeah. And then he phoned me up and said, we have them. Hey, you do? Uh-huh. Wow. Because Spinal Tap was out that summer. And it was, you know, the hottest, hippest most brilliant thing imagined yeah sure and then you're working with all those guys yeah it was intimidating was that a great experience for you though you know as Cher would say if i could turn back time yeah having a one-year contract made you feel like oh i can get out of this right but it also put pressure on you you felt like you were doing a special a week right like there wasn't this sense of i'm gonna be here for seven years okay so i'm not in this week okay so you could feel like a star Saturday night, but by, and as a writer on the show too, by the Wednesday read through, if you didn't have anything in that you would be liked, you felt like a biggest failure in the world. Uh, and it was, and, but, but I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be good because I wasn't going to be there long. But it seems like some of the characters that came out of that you did forever. Yeah. Oh, I'm no fool. Right. But, uh, no, I mean, or people say to me, do you still do your characters from SNL? And I say, sadly, yes, you know, but uh, I went in after the fourth show and tried to quit. I went to the Ebersol's office and said, being Canadian and savvy. Yeah. I said, you know, I haven't cashed any checks. And he went, right. Well, you have a very high Q rating. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, and he handled it like a champ. He really did. Cause he said, and we were only in October or something. And he said, if you leave now. Yeah. Because I had gotten, you know, some early attention on that show. He said, if you leave now, it would be really 
bad for us, but it will be very bad for you. And you'll also be breaking your contract. But if at Christmas you still want to leave, I'll let you leave. Because he knew that, he just later told me, he knew that by midway point, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe I would have figured out to calm down a little bit, not be so worried about the quality of my work. Uh-huh. I, I remember the first show before we went on the air, I said, Harry Shearer and I are writing synchronized swimming together. It's a great bit. Piece that we did. It was a good piece. And I said, Harry, you know how I'm going to do this, this SNL experience? I'm always going to be holding a piece back, a piece that I really believe in, so that I cannot feel pressured. I can tinker with it for an extra week. Yeah. Harry went, oh, that's interesting. Then he got a piece of paper, put it in his typewriter, typed it out, and then put it on his wall. He said, all right, I want to see how that piece is doing each week when you come in here without a fucking idea in your head. <laughs> I'll ask you, how's that piece you're holding back? The one you want your friends to see. How's that piece? It was no such piece. It never would happen. You know. But it made sense to you in the moment. Well, you know, that's how you could do SCTV. You would write for six weeks. And um, Eugene Levy, who is the most prolific writer, one season, the Cinemax season, he first couple of weeks, he just didn't have anything. Now, in SNL, that would be, you wouldn't be in the show for two weeks. Right. He then, in the last four weeks of the writing, made up for the first two weeks, and it was the heaviest in every show, as always. But then, but you were you were um, denied uh, that experience of SNL with Lauren at the helm. But you know yes. Lauren from other things. You're friends with. Well, then Lauren. we did Three Amigos together. Right. How involved and I, was he? He was involved. He's one of the three writers. Oh, okay. Of that script, yeah. Randy Newman, Steve, and Lauren. Uh, and then. Um, you know, then I I had met Lauren originally backstage of Godspell, I think. But wow, then yeah. I got to know him um, very well from Amigos on, mid-80s on. You just became friends because you guys were Canadians? A little bit. And, but also he's funny and charming and loves to laugh. And we had a lot of mutual friends. And then I started doing SNL. So when you look back on it, like, cause you, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you've done so much work. Everybody knows you. You're an amazing performer. You're hilarious. But the question is, is like, when you look back on the TV opportunities or like when you had, you had several shows, mm-hmm. um, do you wish that you had just landed one and stayed on it for your life? Like a talk show or. Well, when you do things like i would say my career has been you know 80 percent in failure and i think those are pretty good odds you know that's not bad um but how do you how do you determine failure really and well i mean failure not in the artistic sense uh but failure in the sense of you're not renewed right you know um your show gets canceled right um the thing that you and then you go huh now what oh maybe broadway wants me and then you go there for a while right hey have you heard you're hot in the movies again i am all right the movies didn't open what about tv you know and then there's the palm springs follies i hear their audition you know you just keep moving along 
And so in retrospect, yeah. as I look back at my career, I love that I, it was so eclectic and had so many things. Yeah. I wasn't on Cheers for 14 years. Right. But in the first season of, had I been on the first season of quote unquote Cheers and it had been canceled, I would have been bummed. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, what the, I think the amazing testament to, to you uh, as a as an entertainer and as an actor and everything else is that clearly your talent is uh, boundless and you know anytime something didn't work out someone said well he's Martin Short let's give him this thing <laughs> <laughs> well I, there was an element of that I think that but I think that you know it's it's it, movies are flukes and. Hey, it's three. Movies are flukes, and and if you're in a successful movie, yeah, that's fantastic. But it happens not often. I think that's I, so. I, I made Three Amigos, and that was did okay, but at the time was considered a disappointment, you know. Yeah. And then I did Inner Space, which was considered supposed to be it's Spielberg and Joe Dante and Dennis Quaid and I, and it was supposed to be a massive hit, and no one saw it, and. Sometimes these films become very popular in the other life. Yeah. And people are amazed that they weren't successful, but they weren't. And so you have so many times at bat. My friend, I have uh, a friend who loves Clifford. Loves I it. love Clifford. Yeah. Clifford is is one of the odder ones, but certainly that was, you know. Fun to make. Well, that was, it, it was hilarious to make. Yeah. And Groden. Yeah. Have you ever met Charles Groden? I fucking love Groden. Oh, my God. So funny, right? I've never He's met him. He's a genius. I've never met him. Well, he has a so you know. I remember when we were working together. He'd say, "So you know, I remember I was in, well. It's in my book, <laughs> and I had to pretend I'd read his book." <laughs> what and is, I had to go, "Oh yeah, of course, of course." He he's totally out of the racket. I mean, he like just left. Well, I think he, you know, I, I don't know how old Charles is. At a certain point, yeah, you know, mm. I, I do think the exit is as hip as the entrance yeah i think that's true he was you so know. fucking funny though what was it about him what did, what would you call him he's a crank is he a well a... it was put on yeah. you know right um i remember in clifford where he 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 improvised this where he, he would say look at me like a human boy and you go who says that <laughs> charles does <laughs> Roden would say right or chuck as everyone calls him chuck Roden. yeah he was he's done some funny shit, man. Oh, hilarious. The good the, the um Heartbreak Kid is if you haven't seen it for a while, just see it again. Oh, it's it's hard it's to art. find. Like it's not on uh, Apple Music uh, Apple, it's not on iTunes. I tried to I wanted it to isn't? No. I wanted to watch it the other night and I I couldn't find it was not easy to find. I couldn't find it. Oh, it's so good. I don't know it's why. So it's so 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 annoying. You would, Jeannie Berlin and everybody. Jeannie Berlin. And that, that moment where she goes, I put cream on. I, oh, <laughs> I like that. It was just that was the moment where he's like. And his line to her is just so endless. Oh, my God. You didn't hear the news? <laughs> you know. <laughs> what? So we're like, after all the, like. I remember Captain Ron. I saw Inner Space. I saw Three Amigos. I saw a lot of these. I liked The Big Picture. That was a great movie. But Father of the Yes, but but what fuels the um but fuels the next, you know, choices are did those films do well at the box office? If they did, get ready for Captain Ron 2. If they didn't, 
what's Broadway doing? Sure. But Father of the Bride was the big movie. That was those were big hits, yes. Yeah. Now when that happens, are you like, I'm back, we're doing it, we're making money. It's great. Let's see, the first one. No, then I went to Broadway. I did a year on Broadway. And then the second one. It, well, you're back in that you get films, but those films have to be successful. It just is it, it's really about, you know, yeah. uh, how successful your last thing is. Yeah. But you like do you like doing Broadway? I did. Uh, it was fantastic. I like the discipline of it. I like the idea that you could do opening night and people would come back and say, oh, that's so good. You're so good. And you go, come back in four months when I'm really good. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. That, that level where you're saying lines and you're not thinking about them and you're as free as you can be because you now – you know it so well it's you know yeah and so this idea that maybe one night in that eight month run you might be perfect oh, yeah, or yeah close to perfect right. was exciting to me because you could you feel it when it happened yes you could yeah yes you could yeah and the, and it's so funny because that's one of those things where only you really know that in a way. Yeah, I remember um, when the New York Times, you know, they staggered the reviewers. In the old days, they came opening night. They don't do that anymore. Yeah. And which is more pressure for the actors because you have to be great, not just like there's no such thing as second night blues because the second night, you know, the New York Post is there. Right. But I remember um, Ben Brantley writing for the New York Times was in the audience uh, i they try to keep it from the star but you find out yeah when i was doing the show fame becomes me on broadway 2006 and i thought at the end of that show we had a whole cast it was a one-man show with a cast you know and at the end of that show i thought okay i it doesn't really matter what ben writes because this was we were just spectacular tonight we were no, everyone knew he was out there, but no one faltered. Everyone was, there was a higher power going on. Uh -huh. And so my thing on that is, like even with reviewers, if you know it's not very good and they say you're not very good, you go, ah, they caught me. Right. But if you know it's great and some idiot doesn't get it, that's not your problem. Right. But it hurts a little. Well, of course, but it doesn't hurt a lot. Because you know it's good. It's, it hurts a lot when you know it's not very good and you're lost in the role and they caught you. Right. What did Ben say about that night? I can't re even remember. I think he was positive. But the point was that he was... Because I don't... I, I kind of think that we're... You know, I'll read reviews on the road of a show. Like if you're... We tried that out in San Francisco and Toronto and Chicago. Because I'm part of the writing thing. So I'm trying to figure out what they say yeah but once you open you do have to protect your little emotional filament you can't be filling your head with you know people's comments about you because you got to do it the next night it's not finished how do you protect so I, your... I try to avoid those reviews review reviews you mean you just don't read the shit tend not to know not if i'm running into something and i can't do anything about it. is there some other tools you incorporate you 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 utilize to protect the emotional filament you try to keep away from negative energy i mean you can learn if you didn't know hatred you can learn it by doing a run on broadway you know <laughs> yeah. people coming back 
Hi, that was fun. <laughs> That's it? That's it? That's all you have to say? You and your stupid actor's brain? I remember one actress said, you know, um, it was, it, you were good, but the play, you know, I, my problem is I can't lie. Uh-huh. And I want to say, well, you can't act either. I mean, if we're going by your last four things, you can't act. Well, that's because they, yeah, that's because she can't lie. I mean, part of acting is lying. Yeah, stop it. You can't, like, you can play a murderess, but you can't come back and say, you were fabulous and what a great show. You can't say that. Phony baloney. So that's me. You learn hatred. Yeah. But yet you, you remain optimistic somehow. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And are you, would you say you're a spiritual person? I would say that I can go on a hike and look at the ocean and the mountains and say, wow, yeah, this is overwhelming. But uh, organized religion or any kind of that, no. Right. So the optimism is just, a, it's a choice. I mean, I look at Woody Allen. I don't know Woody Allen, but you get the impression based on his movies and what he talks about himself, that he spends a lot of time in angst and despair. Mm. I don't know if that's manufactured or if that's just, but the reality is uh, I, I'm not like that. I'm the opposite of that. So it's, someone said of me that I was, I was also laughing on the inside. Yeah. Both. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know why people are like that. Right. Well, I thought, I think it's lucky, uh, lucky if you are. What? To be like you? Yeah. First of all, you live in this great house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you get to know famous people like Chris Guest and people like that. How close does Larry David live to you? Four blocks. Yeah. Are you guys friends yeah. too? Very close friends. I played Larry um, on uh, uh, Primetime Glick, Curb Your Capitalism. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. me as Larry David in a curb, but he, I was playing Ken DeLay. It was a. Uh, about politics, it was Kendall. It was I. I did look like him. The Texas uh, congressman. Yeah. Oh, he was a monster. Monster. What happened to that guy? I don't know. What's gonna ha- What's gonna happen to all these guys? Probably nothing. I don't know. So you think Lindsey Graham will be reelected and Mitch McConnell and everything will just continue? I think some of them are going to lose their jobs. I don't know exactly which ones. I have no fucking idea. I, you know, I'm so bowled over every day by the amount of chaos created by this fucking monster that it's very hard yeah. for me to have any clarity. Like I can't, I can't depend on old models anymore, Martin. I can't, I can't just say like, well, you know, the election will come and things will turn around. Like there is such a, 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 a level of chaos and fear and, and, and weird tension right. that you're like, right. how do we, are we ever going to be released? <laughs> you know, I, I think we I think we will. You know, it's very interesting as a Canadian politics. Um, it's much more. It became much more in the United States Hatfields and McCoys, you know, yeah. in the sense that in Canada, if I vote liberal and my friend votes conservative. It's not a big deal. It's just how come you're voting that way? Well, it didn't used to be that way here either to this no, I degree. Know. Yeah, but I will say that and 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 and. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here. I play all over the United States in every state, Steve and I now over the last few years. Mm. And the audiences are fabulous Mm -hmm. and the people are fabulous. And I believe 
in the positive spirit of Americans. I think that this is a blip. Okay. I hope you're right. And here's the other thing that's very interesting. I saw Fran Leibowitz talk about this on Bill Maher. She said that nine out of 10 Manhattanites did not vote for Donald Trump because they knew who he was. Exactly. And I think four years later, the United States knows who he is. Oh, good. It, 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 we really learned our lesson. <laughs> Great. I'm glad. I'm glad they took their time processing. Yeah, I, and I, I agree with that. I did want to tell you before before I go and before uh, I forget that I thought you were great in the morning show. Oh, thank you, thank you. Like that was a that was something I. That's a cool series. I had not. I know. I, I really. I kind of. I kind of liked it, and I had not seen you so do something like that. I mean, like because you know it's so funny because when I when you show up on screen, there's Martin Short. You have these expectations, then you're like, holy shit, this guy's a fucking monster. You know, like it's not. <laughs> Because, you know, like, you know, a lifetime of watching Martin Short doesn't really prepare you for where you go with that guy. Well, you know, it's tricky. It, it is I remember I did um, a season of a series called Damages. Oh, yeah. And at the very f- first show, I was playing a lawyer, kind of a Madoff type lawyer. Uh-huh. And um, and I remember one of the producers came up to me and said, um, you know, they'd be watching the takes. We do another take. Marty, um, can you not smile? Because when you smile, it becomes Martin Short. And I said, well, you see, that now we have a problem because Hitler smiled. Yeah. You know, if you're playing, the, the devious are the biggest smilers, uh, you know, that, and he went, you're right. And that was the last concern about that. Huh. You know, in other words, you were stuck with the clown, and now you had to somehow forget that he was a clown. Yeah, but that's not really your fault. No, it's not my fault at all. I can't. It's not my fault I'm this beloved, iconic person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fuck that. But it's a burden. It's a burden. <laughs> it was great talking to you, man. Great talking to you, Mark. It's nice. We spent a nice hour plus uh, during the pandemic yes. where days get long. And uh, we, yes. had a, we had a nice conversation about your life. Lovely. Thanks, man. I know. I, I, next time I want to hear all about you. Do you, though? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. You just tell me when. Yeah. If I'm not here, don't think I'm not recording it. Okay. Let's <laughs> see yeah. you later, man. Bye-bye. That was Martin Short. The Emmy-nominated Martin Short for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series in The Morning Show, which you can watch on Apple TV+. And now I will play some guitar for you. What are we going to do? Fight! We're going to fight with our hands and a bat. The fire. Oh, my God. Relax. Fold into the sounds of my guitar playing.
Boomer. Monkeys. The Fonda Live. <laughs> Flying Cats. 